The LARB Radio Hour is a free weekly podcast of the Los Angeles Review of Books, a reader-supported nonprofit publication. To support our continued work on this show in print and online, please consider donating or joining as a member today at lareviewofbooks.org backslash radio hour. Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. So on this week's show, we're talking about a little-known figure named Madonna. Specifically, we're speaking with Mary Gabriel about her massive new biography, Madonna, A Rebel Life. So obviously, I'm joking. Everybody knows who Madonna is. Though, I will say, after reading this, there were so many things, so many things about Madonna that I did not know. You know, and like, she really walks you through the nitty gritty. Like, we were talking about how there would be 10 pages on like a single night at like a nightclub or like another 10 pages on like a single concert performance where you really felt like you got the granular detail and all the characters involved that like helped to pull off that particular video or the concert performance or the dance all night. Like it's incredibly detailed. It's very detailed. I mean, yeah, just to give the way that I've been describing it to friends, and this is not an overstatement, it's such an exhaustive biography that I now know what Madonna wore to an eighth grade performance of a cover of Baba O'Reilly with her best friend, Catherine, and where her family sat in the theater, what their reactions were to this performance, what was said on the drive home. It's one of the most exhaustive biographies that I've ever read. It's an incredible feat of journalism and reporting that Mary Gabriel has pulled off with a figure who, I mean, I don't know what your relationship, I'm like curious to hear what your relationship is to Madonna, Eric, but like, you know, I've always loved her music. I've always really admired her, but I've always felt really removed. Like I, I feel like she's for me as a listener and as like a fan, I think I need more vulnerability. And maybe if I'd known her as a younger performer, you know, I grew up in the eighties and then, and the nineties. So she was by that point, like she was already kind of icon status. And I, so I, I didn't, I didn't connect with her. Like I did with some other performers. It was like sheer admiration rather than like love. Yeah. What about you? Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, I think it's similar for me because yeah, I mean, you and I are the same generation. So it's like, I'm four years older than you, but she was definitely a known quantity by the time I understood or was dipping my toes into pop music. Like Madonna had kind of always been there. Yeah. You know, what was interesting about reading the biography, I totally agree with you that she was kind of like an unassailable pure pop imperious, you know? Yes, totally. By the time that I kind of came to know her. But what this biography kind of draws out is those early years were like very vulnerable. Like she was really doing a lot of things that I guess maybe before reading the biography, I've not have thought of as quite so pathbreaking in the way that they actually were, Right, which was another real benefit of reading the biography. I mean, I also have as like, as a gay, I have like mm-hmm. a, you know, a like very common relationship with Madonna, which is one, it was her song, uh, Time Goes By from Confessions on a Dance Floor, that I met my husband to. Oh. So that was like, became, and is still, I guess, like our song. But it was also, Madonna was also an interesting figure where like older gay men that I worked with, it was like a shared point of connection. Like they had this kind of, very fanatical adulation of her that, and these would be guys that at the time, you know, I was in my twenties and they were in their kind of like mid to late thirties. So they had seen her as like a brand new thing in the eighties. And this is also the weird thing that like you and I are of this generation that like knows about AIDS, usually fear-based stuff, but like didn't experience the before and weren't adults during like the peak of that crisis. So I think that those older gay men had like a very different relationship to her because 
of that experience. But it was also the things that I couldn't understand. Like they're also fanatical about Mariah Carey, you know? So there were things that I was like, oh yeah, no, I love it. The bops are great. Like I love her. Like she's not to me like, oh my God, yes, girl. (laughs) Like (laughs) I, you know, but it's still fun to see her like shuffle lazily down the stairs during a New Year's Eve show. Um, But that, but so it was always this interesting point of connection. And one of the other things that I liked about this book, or it was a side effect of reading it, is going back and listening to Madonna's albums in sequence. And it did make me realize that it's pretty much like right after Confessions on a Dance Floor and maybe also music that I I kind of lose interest in her. So I'm like a, more of a big fan of the kind of 80s, 90s, and very, very early 2000s Madonna. The stuff that she did after that, I'm still working my way through the catalog, so TBD, but it never really grabbed me. And, you know, that was another one of the things I thought was really interesting about speaking with Mary Gabriel and going back over this history is thinking about, like, the kind of role that Madonna plays in music and culture right now versus, like, this, which I I think is not controversial to say is probably like much diminished from like her earlier like status and certainly in the 80s and 90s but even in the very early 2000s so kind of being reminded of that history and trajectory and also all the careers and cultural stuff for lack of a better word that Madonna enabled that this biography like really brings into focus it's true and i would i would really recommend listeners go back and watch some of those early performances yes early interviews I mean, they're phenomenal. She's phenomenal. Totally. And I think, you know, you really get how she became who she is. Mm-hmm. And I agree, like somewhat diminished in in more recent years. It really was a lot of fun to watch those. Okay. And really fast before we get to the interview, favorite Madonna song, go. So because my husband is listening, I do have to say Time Goes By, which does have a special place in my heart for that reason. But if it's my absolute favorite, like the one I think of when I think of Madonna, it is Like a Prayer. That is the blend of musical styles, the music video, it's all of it was very iconic. And like the soaring vocals, I just like, I can't get enough of. It's the song that I think of when I think of Madonna. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna agree with you, Eric. There's so many to choose from. Vogue is probably a close second, but Like a Prayer is just such a, it's so good, it's so joyful, it's so fun to sing. Great karaoke song. Let's get to this interview. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. We're excited to have Mary Gabriel joining us on the line today, all the way from Galway, in fact. Mary is an award-winning biographer, historian, and journalist whose previous books include Lee Krasner, Elaine de Kooning, Grace Hartigan, Joan Mitchell, and Helen Frankenthaler, Five Painters and the Movement that Changed Modern Art, as well as Love and Capital, Carl and Jenny Marks and the Birth of a Revolution, and Notorious Victoria, The Life of Victoria Woodhill, Uncensored. For nearly two decades, Mary was an editor at Reuters, working out of the London and Washington offices, but she joins us today to discuss her latest book, Madonna, A Rebel Life. This doorstopper of a biography, which clocks in at over 800 pages, excluding notes, which will be provided in a website to come, follows the decades-defining superstar from her Michigan roots to her New York debut, her London era, and more, all the way to 2020. Understanding that in order to explore Madonna's life, one also must account for the ways in which the world she found and made shaped her, the tome can also be read as a history of late 20th century and early millennial culture focalized through Madonna's unique trailblazing career. Indeed, readers can expect to learn as much about Madonna as the dizzying number of auxiliary characters, such as dance teachers, backup dancers, friends, lovers, family members, fashion designers, artists, and more, as well as the cultural movements that emerge and retreat as the steady backbeat of this stunning biography. Welcome to the show, Mary. We're thrilled to have you with us. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. Mary, let's start with the basic question, why Madonna? You know, my last book was about five women painters, as Eric just mentioned, and that story ended in 1959. And it was such an exciting place to be, you know, in that creative milieu, talking about women artists. And I wanted to continue that, but I thought if I did another book about painters or sculptors, I'd repeat myself. So I started looking at other art forms. 
And then coincidentally, while I was looking, I came across Madonna's 2016 Billboard Women of the Year Award speech. And it was so powerful. I had never really paid attention to Madonna. I think I'm the only person on the planet who hadn't. And that stopped me in my tracks because I realized I don't know anything about her. And it was such an honest, moving, and important speech at a time when we were all so raw right after the 2016 election. So I started poking around. And the more I read about her, the more I realized that in the millions of pages that have been written about her in the past 40 years and the many books, I still don't think that people truly got the picture of who she was, which is a very, I don't want to say ordinary, but in a way, that's the beauty of her. She's this ordinary, extraordinary, ordinary person who created a life of her own making, did it brilliantly, and changed all of ours. So by the time I had been looking for a subject for about a year, I couldn't get her out of my head, obviously. And then I started listening to her music and I was a goner. So that was it. That was going to be the subject. And and it was interesting chronologically because my previous book ended in 1959. She was born in 1958. And so she represents kind of the next stage of women in art. You know, supposedly the 60s and 70s represented a world in which women could do what they want, say what they want, be who they wanted. You know, they were free and liberated. And yet that wasn't at all the case. And so we could learn that story through Madonna's life. That's a great place to start because I think there is something about that late 70s, early 80s, particularly the the New York scene. So when Madonna kind of leaves home to go to New York and she's surrounded by a unique, let's say, version of the avant-garde. So this would be people like Jean-Michel Basquiat, who I did not realize. I know that many of my gay friends will shame me for admitting that I did not know this before, but that she actually dated Jean-Michel Basquiat for a while. But she's also hobnobbing with people like Andy Warhol and Keith Haring. And in a way, I guess we can think about this group, Basquiat maybe not so much, but this group is taking avant-garde art and ideas mainstream. And as I was reading your biography, it seems like that's also kind of what Madonna was trying to do as well. So I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about that cultural milieu that she came up in and how that ended up defining her as kind of an artist and creative. You're absolutely right. I'm so glad you got that because I often think, you know, the misconceptions about Madonna are so prevalent. If we could just rewind her story and start it at that time in New York, I think we would have a much better idea of who she is, what she does, and why she does it. And so, yes, you're right. She arrived in New York in the late 70s, kind of found her way around, didn't even know anything about pop culture for a while while she was becoming a dancer. And then she stumbled through, you know, a series of boyfriends and also her work, you know, into the clubs in downtown, downtown Manhattan. This would be probably now we're in like 1980, 81. And a couple things were happening there. It was this absolute maelstrom of creativity and social revolution. I mean, Stonewall was 69. So the gay community in New York had 10 years to celebrate, but really kind of the young avant-garde heteros and also wonderfully mixed community. So there, I can't even say hetero because as Keith Haring said, everyone was pretty much bi in those days. So that scene coalesced around music and dancing. And so those groups came together. The gay scene that had already been in the clubs, building the club scene for a decade. And now the young, I guess you could probably say, you know, musicians and artists and filmmakers and fashion designers from all around the world coalesced in these clubs. And the Bronx guys, the hip-hop artists, started coming downtown. So in these clubs, the Roxy, Danceteria, Paradise Garage, The Saint, there was this wild mesh of love, creativity, activity. And there were no limits. There were no limits on what you did, how you looked. You could be a painter one day. You could be a fashion designer the next. You could be a singer. You could be a, you know, a producer. There were no limits. And there were no boundaries. And you're absolutely right that this was really the coming together. This was like the manifestation of the culture Andy Warhol created in the early 60s. This was his pop world. And there wasn't a difference between the commercial world and the avant-garde. It was all one thing. If you did a commercial and it made it on TV, good for you. It didn't make you less of an artist. It was fun because your platform, everybody was seeing it. 
And so that is really Madonna's creative birthplace. So she she was influenced by by people who were without limitations. Everything was fun and everything was sexy and everything was deep, but at the same time, silly. I mean, it was just a wonderful place to be. The gallery, I guess you could call him a, a dealer, our dealer at this point, Jeffrey Deach, who's now in Los Angeles, called this uh, convergence period. And he said that there were other ones like that in history, you know, Paris at the turn of the century, New York after World War II, and early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, New York was another one where everything changed. And we're still living with, we're living as a result of those kids and what they did in those clubs in those days. So I think, you know, one place to go with that, and I want to get there soon, but in the ways in which that really turns once AIDS hits New York in particular, but maybe just to stay in this like wonderful, creative, joyful milieu for just a little bit longer, you know, you watch some of those videos from her early performances and you write about people being absolutely certain that she was going to be a huge star. Basquiat tells Gagosian, oh, she's going to be the biggest pop star in the world. She's my girlfriend, but that's what's coming next. And you watch those videos and you you understand it. You can see it. You see why she's a star. She has this extremely charismatic, powerful presence. And I feel like that's, you know, that's one of the central mysteries of people like her, like where this comes from. And I wonder, because you spent so much time with her and her formative years and her as a child. And do you feel like you came a little bit closer to understanding where that, some of that power, that initial power in such a young woman, I mean, she's, she's nothing. She's like 20 years old, where that comes from. I mean, some people, you know, just are meteorites, you know, they, they shoot out of the sky right at you and, you know, you can't deny them. And and so there's a mystery there. And the great artists throughout history are those people, but certain things happen to them. And I think what gave her, so let's say in that beautiful little head of hers as a child, there was already, you know, something cooking, you know, something that was going to turn into Madonna. And you can hear that in the story she tells about dancing in her neighborhood in Pontiac, Michigan to Motown, you know, with her little girlfriends and pretending they were in a girl group and, you know, just wonderful things like that. But I think the thing that propelled her is what propels a lot of people when you dig a little bit. And that's, some kind of really profound rupture in childhood. And in her case, it was this heartbreak when her mother died when she was five. And the family situation, I mean, everybody who knows Madonna knows the story, you know, like everybody could recite it. But what I was so struck by is that when you think about the numbers, here was her father who was what, I think 32 or something, maybe 35 at the most. He had six kids under the age of eight one of whom was an infant to raise. And Madonna, when her mother died, had to become the little mother. And she was only five, you know, five and six. And so I think that the combination of that loss at that age, and she said no one in the family, her father really didn't ever talk about it. So it was this thing she was always haunted by, that loss, and that she had to kick in, into gear at that moment and become a little adult gave her the strength and courage. And children respond to those kinds of traumas in a couple of different ways, many ways, but usually it breaks down to either it kills you or it makes you stronger, pardon the cliche. And in her case, it made her stronger. And I think that that strength, that I am not going to let anything hurt me. And then the disappointment two years later or three years later when her father remarried, that really was the nail in the coffin. And she became a completely independent, gutsy. She became the little Madonna that we know now, you know, take no prisoners, do what she wants, be the best at everything, show the world, you know, that she's a value. And so I think that's where it came from, where the music came from. You know, that's the beauty of that whole Detroit scene. I mean, music was percolating. That was like its own little convergence period. You know, when you think about Motown, Aretha Franklin, the music scene there, everybody played an instrument. I don't talk about this in the book because it was cut for length, but there was this music store there that was one of the first desegregated stores in Detroit, and it was called Grinnell's Music. And they loaned people pianos, didn't matter how much money you had. So families everywhere and housing projects everywhere had pianos, and that's where she came from. So it makes perfect sense that her expression would be in music. This kind of tease into a much larger question about the production 
of this biography. So the fact that you have, and, and readers will find this, like there are so many micro stories as you're tracking this like macro story, which it, itself, Madonna's Lies has so many threaded narratives that don't work out cleanly over decade or even year divisions, right, as you well know. But also in trying to account for these larger cultures and this deep family history, like, I'm just curious how you managed all the sources and like how, I know it sounds like you did not have access necessarily to Madonna, so she did not provide an interview, but you did have access to Christopher, one of her brothers, and who was very close with her, obviously toured with her extensively, and was, as I think Rupert Everett said, like, in order to know Madonna, you also very much had to understand Christopher, that they were like two sides of the same coin. So can you talk, A, about kind of like how you got connected to Christopher, but also how you managed to report somebody who, while there is lots of public stuff about her, the stories that you get, like, take us inside for multiple pages, a single night at the Saint, for example. The funny thing is that I'll talk about the frustrations of not getting to the people I needed to get to. When I started this book, I've always written about dead people. And so I thought, wow, I've got some live ones here. I can actually do interviews. And when I realized that wasn't going to happen, I didn't understand. I was so naive. I didn't understand this, this closed door that exists at a certain level of celebrity, you know, that people just do not talk. And I can understand that. And I, I respect that. But Anyway, it was very frustrating for me at the beginning, so I had to find other ways to do it. And so I actually started writing this book the way I have all my historical books, was just going to the library, going to the archives, digging up every interview I could find with her, with the people around her. And in a way, I started to actually appreciate the fact that that's the way I was doing it, because then I could give those full descriptions of a single night, because there would be many people there. And they could each tell their side of the story. And if I had interviewed all those people, I would still be working on the book. It would be a 20-year project instead of a five-year project. And so the other thing that was valuable about that was I could I could have them talking about it pretty much contemporaneously. So if I'm if Madonna is talking about her VMA performance when she did Like a Virgin, you know, her most famous first performance, there was a guy she did an interview with for Seventeen magazine. I think the interview was in 1984. So it was maybe it was 85, but just a few months after that. So we could hear her at the time discuss it instead of her reminiscing 30 years later. And the story would have changed for her so much as it does for all of us, memories and interpretations. And so anyway, I like to give readers the voices of the people as close to the time the event was happening as possible. So I think that that makes it a little more real. As far as getting Christopher or someone like that, he was just really generous and wonderful. And part of the reason was is that I wanted to tell his part of the story. In the biographies about Madonna, he's really missing in action. And yet, as you said with that Rupert Everett quote, for the first 20 years of her life, professionally, he was next to her. So he was great because my interest in him wasn't in getting dirt on Madonna. My interest was in telling in him telling me what was happening with him because he was her closest collaborator for a good part of the beginning, you know, up until like 2000. It's interesting to hear you talk about the sort of wall that goes up around a certain tier of celebrity because the way that Madonna started out was really not like that. (laughs) She was much more available. And, you know, I was watching clips of the Truth or Dare documentary last night and I think I just had never thought of the way in which she had, I don't think that anybody had provided that kind of access to celebrities before, like this intimate, sort of boring, kind of bratty, these little interactions that are caught on film. And I was curious about how you think she has redefined celebrity. And maybe that means also, you know, figuring out a little bit like how she started out and perhaps where she ended up, which is where you're sort of trying to face her. But that I think even from that very beginning of her career, really changing what a celebrity is. She really did. You know, before Truth or Dare, which was 1991, I think it was released 1991, the only examples of a film that honest that we've, what we would have access to as a public was Bob Dylan's 
early tour film. I think it was called Don't Look Back or Don't Look Now. I always get confused with the movie from 63, 64, 65 in London. It was completely unvarnished. You know, he was a total asshole, but he didn't care. He allowed that to be on screen, kind of, because then he pulled it from the market for literally decades. The next was the PBS reality show, the first reality show called An American Family, featuring the Loud family, a California family that dissolved on screen before our very eyes. And that was in the early 70s. But aside from those two, no one else had dared that. And I think one of the things that Madonna, which is interesting, I I found, one of the things that makes her most attractive as a figure and also most compelling is her honesty. We think that she's she operates behind layers of what would be the best word? She's such a packaged individual. You know, her packages are created for each product and she becomes that character. So people say, well, who is she really? You know, where is Madonna? And the fact is, she's right there. You know, she's a very, she is who you see. And her songs tell the story of her life, not completely autobiographical, but she's not holding anything back. And so with Truth or Dare, she decided to do that on on film. And it was incredibly daring. And Alex Kashishian, who directed it, talked about the difference between what she did and what a a star's film today is. And that's, you know, you do take after take, you do massive editing, you know, they get in makeup before they go on. I'm actually interested to see if both Taylor Swift and Beyonce are going to release films this fall. And I'm really curious to see what that would look like, you know, how honest that would be. They say, oh, they'll be behind the scenes. But behind the scenes today is not, as you say, Madonna slurping up a bowl of soup with a hairnet on in Truth or Dare. So she did change celebrity and she challenged celebrities and she challenged us to be able to look at someone like her, look at an artist of her magnitude as a person, not as, you know, someone living on another plane. And in that way, she could approach us with her work in a much more open and honest way and connect with us. And I think that's really the secret to her power. She connects on such a deep level. She becomes part of her fans. And I guess that's true of a lot, but I think part of the reason she's able to is one of the reasons is because of things like Truth or Dare, where she just really lays it all out. Here's who I am, like me or not, this is me. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Mary Gabriel, author of Madonna, A Rebel Life. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have Ross Gay on the line with us today. Ross is a poet and a writer. His latest book is called The Book of More Delights, and Ross is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Ross, what book are you going to recommend? The book that I'm reading and enjoying for a number of reasons probably is by um, the writer Ross Feld. And it's called Gustin and Time about Philip Gustin. And it's about his relationship with Philip Gustin. And if I recall right, he was friends with Gustin the last handful of years of his life, Gustin's life. And Feld was friends with Gustin. And it's just sort of like, it's a neatly set up. The book has this neat form. And the form is that one chapter will be sort of Ross Feld doing a kind of a biographical or art critical or whatever kind of take on Gustin's work, art historical, et cetera. And then there will be like a letter because they had a evidently a pretty intense correspondence. I mean, it's a beautiful book for a bunch of reasons. I love Philip Gustin's paintings and I love this formal way that it works. It's kind of an interesting, compelling way to, to do this thing. But I'm also really interested in mentors and those kind of mentor-mentee relationships. It's funny because I have another book sitting right here, Come Back in September by Daryl Pinckney, about the New York Review of Books and all that. I love that book. There's something so interesting to me about young people in relationship with older people doing whatever they do, making whatever they make. Did you have a mentor? Yeah. Yeah, the poet Gerald Stern. 100% the poet Gerald Stern, yeah. And uh, Jerry died like a year, almost a year ago now, or almost at a year. And he was 97 and he had written a bunch of books and he was my teacher at Sarah Lawrence College. He also, I mean, there's just so many ways that he was a, a kind of guide to me. In addition to like, since we earlier talked about the Book of Delights, Jerry has this incredible book of essays called, so he wrote poems and then he wrote essays later in his life. 
And he has a book called Stealing History, which is all of these short entries. Not quite daily, but they have a diaristic feeling to them that I have no doubt I mostly just stole from him. The idea, I'm sure, I was just like, oh yeah. You know, that's kind of like one of the beautiful relationships to me between a mentor and their mentee is that you're kind of like, oh yeah, this is a way to do it. Neat. I can just write an essay a day. Cool. So when I'm reading that book, I am really moved. Feld was a little bit older when he became, a little bit older when he became friends, went older than I was when I met Jerry Stern, but he was young. And it's just neat to sort of see him, you know, there's this kind of at this place where Gustin just had a big heart attack and he's <laughs> evidently he's not the kind of person who's like going to stop smoking and stop eating lard and stuff. <laughs> And this young guy, Ross Feld, is like, hey, Philip, I don't think you're supposed to eat that. And Gustin's like, whatever. <laughs> and I could just feel that so much. I could feel that feeling of like wanting to be to whoever, an older person who I kind of care about like that and be like, hey, maybe you shouldn't. And then being like, nah, that's that's not your job. Your job is just to kind of like do something else. But it's not to tell me what to eat, you know? <laughs> right. Well, I think I think we actually got a trio of recommendations. So maybe you can tell us the titles and the authors of the three books that you just mentioned. Yeah. So I said Ross Feld's book, Gustin and Time. That's where we started. And then we hopped over to Daryl Pinckney's book, Come Back in September. And then Gerald Stern has a book called Stealing History. He has many books, but the book Stealing History is a book of short essays that I really love. Thank you so much, Ross. That was a beautiful recommendation. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. We've been talking to Ross Gay. His new book is called The Book of More Delights. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now back to our conversation with Mary Gabriel, author of Madonna, A Rebel Life. I kept thinking about this, especially as I read through the early and middle parts of the book, when you're talking about all the risks that she takes. I mean, there's things that the Like a Virgin performance at the VMAs, for example, like it was meant to be provocative. It was a venue in which one could be provocative, but she really took that to the nth degree. And there's also her unflagging advocacy on behalf of people with AIDS and the struggle to fight AIDS that I feel at the time, like it's hard, you know, Medea and I were talking about before we got on this interview, you know, kind of who are her comps in the present, you know, and Beyonce came up and it's, there's a similar woman who is very much in control of her output, right? Which Madonna always has been as well, but it's hard to think about a contemporary artist taking the kind of risks, very big risks, cultural risks, that Madonna was taking in her moment and having a music label still be willing to publish her work. I mean, I guess my larger question here is, could an artist today have the kind of leeway or freedom that Madonna had but also fought for with labels that at the time kind of were maybe more invested in building an artist rather than just churning through them? And would her career, you know, her early career, even be possible for an artist today? I don't think so for many reasons. One of them being that there is so much money. It takes so much money to launch a career today. It's such a major investment across so many platforms, partly because of Madonna. You know, she created that multi-platform entertainer model. So. I think that record labels such that they are wouldn't allow it, one. Two, I think that the climate, the social climate is begging for someone like that, you know, begging for someone to lead. And maybe, maybe someone could do it on a smaller scale, you know, with social media, the internet, you know, that kind of thing and build up. I mean, that's probably what Madonna, if she were arriving on the scene today would do. She would start small on her own and create this, you know, this monument but I just don't think they could do it because also when you think about it, record companies just aren't what they were. People don't buy records. There isn't the radio that existed in her day. So I think that it's just a completely different environment. And I I think it's very possible that somebody could do it, but just not using that 
the method that she did or through the traditional, let's say through a, a record company in a sanctioned way, I think that that would not happen. Maybe we can talk a little bit about ways in which perhaps Madonna's work has been understood throughout her life. I think one of those ways is that we can talk about the AIDS crisis and how people now sometimes look back on Vogue and the aesthetics around that, her incorporating ballroom into her work and making it very visible as a form of appropriation, right? And as a form of taking something from from this community and using it to help herself become an international star. But as you know, something that really becomes clear in the book, and then I, I frankly didn't know, though I feel like I had a sense of it, is she was very much a part of this of this culture and very much part of her scene was very much dear friends with many of the people who became sick. And so I wonder if we can talk a little bit about that part of her life and how she maybe decided to bring more visibility to what was happening in this, in that community at the time. You know, if we go back to that magical moment we were talking about earlier between the late seventies, early eighties, that came to a crashing halt by about the mid eighties because of AIDS. And in 1981, this disease was identified, but it was so strange. I mean, medical science didn't know what to make of it. No one knew what to make of it, except that it was, it was killing gay men, which, you know, in the days of Ronald Reagan, didn't really bother anyone except gay men and sometimes not even the gay men, their families. And so Madonna grew up in that milieu. Her best friends were literally her best friend was a gay man who had AIDS. The people she loved and respected were dropping dead from this disease. This is Madonna, the little mother again, coming to the rescue. There is no way she's going to let that happen and not hold accountable those people who are in a position of power who could do something to help and chose not to. So she used her voice, she used her money, and she used her art to draw attention to the AIDS crisis. And so, you know, you talk about her mainstreaming, let's say the Vogue, you know, ballroom dancing or the ball scene. Her first kind of mainstreaming, which people don't think of it this way, but I do, were these girls stuck in their suburban bedrooms throughout the country. You know, that was her first audience. She tried to force the world to recognize them. You know, they have needs, they have a voice, they're people, they can be like me, you know, watch me, you be like me. And she created this monster army of young women. Her next focus, not long after that, when she had power, was focusing on gay rights, the AIDS crisis. And that was such a toxic thing for uh, an entertainer or a celebrity in those days that there was this really great, I guess I'd left it in the book, this Joel Schumacher, the director, talked about making a film about a woman whose little brother is dying of AIDS. And he said about 30 actresses who were really, you know, the women who were most associated with liberal causes wouldn't go near the story because it was so hot. It was considered so off limits for an entertainer or an actor at that time. Madonna fought for the role. And so she was out there. She was saying things that the government wasn't saying. Scientists weren't saying. She was putting safe sex messaging in her concerts, in her albums, in her tour brochures. And she was awakening people to the disease that at that time, people thought heterosexuals couldn't get it. You know, she said, you can get it this way. You can get it. She talked about anal sex. She talked about, you know, heterosex. You can get it in any position. And the only way to avoid it is safe sex. So she was really important that way in highlighting that crisis. But I think even more important than that, she shifted the narrative with blonde ambition and truth or dare. She made gay life about life not about death, because actually mainstream America, by the time it decided after Rock Hudson's death that it had to talk about AIDS, it was very happy to talk about dying gay men, but not living gay men. And Madonna said, my friends are beautiful, strong, even if they're HIV positive, they're wonderful. I love them. Here they are. And the world celebrated that. And it was really, really changed the storyline. And I think She's done significant things in her life, but I think what she did for young women and what she did for the gay community at that moment were so powerful and so important. And it happened during the very far right Reagan years, you know, just at the start. And it was the time somebody had to say it and she was there to do it. 
So I want us to, because it is impossible to condense this entire life and this massive biography in such a short amount of time that we have for this interview. But what I do want to talk about now is if we can kind of, unfortunately, zoom through the 90s, also a peak Madonna period. When we head into the 2000s, it seems like there's a shift and there's a shift in like a couple of different ways. I mean, let's also say that there was a shift from the kind of party tracks of her early albums into something that felt much more like a fully conscious artistic expression or interest in artistic experimentation in the kind of 90s albums. When we hit the 2000s, there's both like an effort to continue innovating on the dance floor, you know, music that she was known for, but also the public is kind of confronted with a Madonna who is not the like 20-something-year-old ingenue that she was in 1984, but is like an older woman. She has a child now. She's been through several high-profile relationships. And there seems to be a kind of blowback about her, both, let's say, to be simple about it, like continuing to be sexy or to sell sex appeal in her, let's say, like early to mid-40s. Can you talk a little bit about that period and how her career is shifting, but also how public perception of Madonna also seems to be shifting during this period? Yeah. Let me just take the second part first, because I think it's so funny. You know, we talk about her continuing to be sexy. She is sexy. You can't remove that part of her. I mean, that's just who she is. To this day, that's who she is. And so... I think those kinds of things are more of a reflection on us as a society than they are on Madonna. So get that out of the way. We're watching her grow up as an artist. So by the time she's in 2000, 2003 with American Life, she's a mature woman. And so, of course, she's not the ingenue she once was. And if she were, that would be weird. So she's got new concerns. She's got new priorities, both in her life and in what she wants to say and do in her work. And so. I think throughout her life, and I try to emphasize this in the book, and I think you you two both understand this, that she is really responsive to what's going on around her, where she lives, what's happening in society, who she's working with. So in the 2000s, she moves to Europe. She's in her second marriage. She's got a second kid. She's working with European producers. Everything has changed. You know, there's no way she can be Madonna of yore, even though many parts of her continue. And so I think that that's really partly what it is. And the world was a mess. The radical schism between the 90s, as horrible as they were, and 2000, you know, the police state that began in 2000 around the world and this drift toward where we are now, which is, you know, frightening indeed. She was foreseeing that. And, you know, when she did her Drowned World Tour in the early 2000s, it was really dark. And people didn't quite understand why is she going so heavy? Well, her tour ended at September 11th. You know, she is actually very prescient about a lot of things. And I'm not saying this in kind of a voodoo way. She just really has her finger on the pulse of society because she meets so many people and she reads so much and she travels so much so she can see trends. And so I think in the 2000s, she continued to say things that people didn't necessarily want to hear as she did in the early 80s with women and as she did in the late 80s with gay rights and, and AIDS. But she dabbled in politics, and that's really the third rail for pop stars, or you know, if you call her a pop star at all, but for celebrities. People really get annoyed, even fans. And I don't know why, because she was political her whole life. You know, those things I just described were both political statements, but but somehow she got away with it because she didn't hit you over the head with it. And she started to a little bit more after 2000, after American life. And I think that that really turned a lot of people off. Now, I think that's really unfair because I think American Life was a fantastic album. And when we look back now, once again, she was prescient, you know, calling out the war, calling out Bush, that American Life video where she throws a grenade at him. I mean, that's hilarious today, but she couldn't even air it. It was so controversial. So I think that it's just a matter that she's as you would, as we would, you know, you grow and you change and your values change and your emphasis change and your work changes. And we should grow along with her and not expect her to remain static. I mean, here's a woman who built her career on evolution or what people call reinvention. And because she turns 40, she's supposed to stop. It just doesn't work that way. 
you just said, well, she's a pop star, if you even want to call her a pop star. And that was one of the things that I thought about while reading your book, which is, what do we call her? Or what do you want us to call her? I would call her a performance artist. I think, I mean, she's a pop star in the Andy Warhol sense of the term as a pop artist, because she's made underground art popular. You know, she's taken subversive messages and made them part of pop culture. But when you say pop star, that's not how that's seen. So I would call her a performance artist because she's not a singer. She's a songwriter. She's a producer. She's a filmmaker. She's a video, an actor. She's a fashion designer of her own material and an inspiration to fashion. She's a muse. So she's all of these things. She's not easily put in a box. So I think if we need to have a box, it should just be performance artist. Another label that we might talk about in terms of how we can use it to think about Madonna. And I've been thinking about this with a lot of, especially women from the late 20th century, is this question of Madonna as a feminist, which I think on the one hand, to kind of pick up what you had been saying earlier, I think that oftentimes we see an indictment or perhaps a diagnosis of society when we, you know, run into like, well, but if she's a feminist, you know, why is she to use something like my mom would say, like her tarting herself up or something, right? And that shows both like a fundamental disconnect in how we think about feminism that like, oh, the feminist, for example, a vulgar version of this argument would be the feminist is supposed to be a man-hater who does not value making herself beautiful. You literally could never say this about Madonna, right? She obviously very much relishes men of all different types and makes herself, as you said, she just is sexy. She exudes that. But at the same time, she's using that to break things that we never would have talked about before, as you were saying, putting safe sex messaging inside of her liner notes, like all that kind of stuff. So how do you think of, or, or how does Madonna perhaps challenge the way that we think of the term or the label feminist? A lot of the work I've done through the years, in fact, my first book was about this woman named Victoria Woodhull, who ran for president in the 1800s and 1872. And she broke with the traditional suffragettes in those days because she was too sexy. And there's always been this tension within the women's movement from the start, from Seneca Falls, between the upright mothers who want their rights, bless their hearts, and women who say, yeah, but my rights begin in the bedroom because you can vote all you want to. But until I can look the way I want to look and act the way I want to look and satisfy my desires the way I want to and own myself, I'm not free. My vote's worthless. So, I mean, that has been really, that's been a thread. And it even destroyed second wave feminism in the 70s. So, so Madonna, when she appeared in 1982, when she was releasing her first single, there was a meeting at Columbia University over sex and feminism. And of course, I'm sure she had no idea this was happening. And these women were at each other's throats saying, you cannot be a feminist if you like sex. Basically, that was the bottom line. And here was Madonna telling a new generation, no, you're not normal if you don't like sex. Or if you choose not to like sex, okay, that's your choice. But you've got to be allowed to have choose from the menu, even if you're a woman. And so I think that she's, she's just the feminist that finally arose, that kind of solved that conundrum. How do you be a woman and how do you be a woman who fights for your rights? And as she always says, you use everything you have. You are everything you are. If you're not sexy, fine, don't be. If you are, celebrate it. And that's exactly what she's done. And it doesn't mean in any way that she's setting the women's movement back. Quite the contrary. I mean, it's been misinterpreted. And there have been people who've co-opted her message tragically and horribly. But you can't control what happens with your message. Okay, this is just sort of a fun one. But if you could be at any, if you could place yourself at any Madonna performance in the history of time, which one would it be? Oh dear. That's such a good question. Well, you know, I automatically think concert and I would automatically think blonde ambition, but maybe it would be fun to be at Paradise Garage when she did, you know, at Keith Haring's Party of Life when she premiered Like a Virgin. I mean, that would have been pretty fun to see. Or maybe at Danceteria when she first sang Everybody, you know, Here's the star, Madonna. You know, nobody knew who Madonna was. So 
that might have been fun. But I, I guess if it was a concert, it would be Blonde Ambition because that was just so fantastic and so culture changing and so so joyous. What about it do you feel like is joyous? Well, first of all, it was a celebration of life, as I said before, at a time of AIDS. And, you know, three of her dancers, three of her seven dancers were HIV positive. And so they were literally dancing for their lives. And she wasn't aware that they were. There's this energy there. You know, she is wild and powerful. And that's the thing that goes back to sex and feminism. At that moment in that concert, she showed that a woman's sexuality isn't something to be controlled. It's something to be celebrated. And it, it is the seat of her power. And Madonna just took that and pushed it out into the world. And you can't look at her and deny it. And that made people tremble. I mean, I have this theory that when she first came on the scene, she was this cute little hot number and she had a little baby voice. And I am sure all the record industry people in Los Angeles thought, wow, thank God, we can finally put feminism behind us and go back to having hot chicks. But then they discovered she wasn't singing to them. She was singing to girls and gay men and, you know, they were kind of superfluous. And so I think that from that moment on, they were like the jilted party, you know, these guys, and they never forgave her. And with Blonde Ambition, that was the last straw. So for me, that concert was really fabulous in every way. There's also that super touching story about the dancers seeing themselves celebrated by the fans that like answered a kind of question that had been lingering for me about, okay, is Madonna, because she adopts and adapts so many kind of like music, culture, aesthetics, and styles from queer, Latin, and Black cultures, you know, that I was like, is this about adoption, adulation? Is it, you know, appropriation? And moments like that, I think, really do show the opportunities that she was giving people to see a kind of platform for themselves and also an adulation that they had not really experienced. But to kind of wrap up here, I'm wondering if there's, and I'm sure there's not just one thing, but what do you want people to take away from this book? When you were in the midst of writing or in the midst of getting ready to do press, putting the final like you know copy edits on the pages, what is it that you want readers to take away? I'd like them to reevaluate Madonna because I think she's been so mauled historically in the press. I would like people to enjoy her story, and I hope to God they watch her videos, listen to her music, and go to the internet and listen to her while they're reading. So if I'm talking about a video, look at it, experience it the way I did when I was writing it, because it's really fun. But I think the biggest message for readers, and I hope that people come away with this, is courage, that she represents the power of a woman or the power of a person without fear. And we are all so afraid and so disengaged and she shows how somebody coming from nowhere can become something and change the world. And those stories actually don't exist these days. I mean, not that often. And she is really one of the few people, I think, certainly in modern history, who's done that. You know, there's a very few corners of the world you can go to that people haven't heard about Madonna and have strong opinions about her, good, bad, or otherwise. And so I think it's just that idea that if through this book, people can find the inspiration that she's sort of been giving to her fans all these years. I would like people beyond her fan base to feel that too. All right. I think that's a lovely note to end on. We've been speaking with Mary Gabriel, author most recently of Madonna, A Rebel Life. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a thrill to have this conversation with you. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlotten.